hear the word of the Lord. For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. So you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Holy Spirit produces this, this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you. My name's Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting with us, welcome. We're excited you're here as we're working through the book of Galatians. A couple of things real quick. Uh, we've got a few weeks left for year-end giving, and so some of us wait till the end of the year and catch up on giving, or the Lord's blessed you and you got a whole bunch extra laying around, Right? All those piles of money we have laying around at our house. Uh, so if you're going to participate somewhere in a year-end giving campaign, uh, we'd love for it to be here. Two things we're doing, fixing this roof. So selfishly, if you'd like to be dry come April, um, I would encourage you to give. And uh, then uh, what we're also going to do is send out a couple of folks to go visit long-term missionaries we have overseas, uh, just to encourage them and bless them. So it works out what we're asking for fundamentally is $75 per giving unit in the church. So some folks, 75 bucks is nothing, and you should write way more than that. Some of you, $75 is unrealistic. We're just saying it's a, it's a reasonable amount of money. Um, if you want to write a check, you can just put New Albany year-end giving in the memo line when you put it in the bucket, uh, or online. We've got pull-down menus and technology in the app, all that kind of stuff. You can just select year-end giving. So hope you get to do that. And also, this week is one of my favorite nights of the week because we're going Christmas caroling. Huh? Who's, who's excited but mostly nervous about Christmas caroling, right? Who thinks they're awesome at singing? One? Was that you that made that noise? No, because I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, that makes more sense. Um, so here's the deal with Christmas caroling. Most of us feel totally awkward and weird about it. Most of us feel very nervous about it. Uh, very few of us think we have these amazing killer singing voices. There's like 20 people in our church that could do well on American Idol, I think. You know, maybe 15 that like they're legit. Yep, there you go. 15 that are like legit singers. And we strategically place them throughout the rest of the caroling so we more support them like a choir than any one of us are, are lead singing. 
Uh, so in all, in all seriousness, it's about 90 seconds of singing per house, familiar Christmas songs. And uh, it's amazing how suddenly it doesn't sound so bad when we all sing together. But what's even more amazing is how much the people being sung to don't care what it sounds like. And so here's one of the beautiful opportunities we have as a church. We're going to go door to door. The, the info, the details are on the bulletin. We're going to come here, break off into groups. You'll get a route where you'll go. And we'll knock on the door and we will sing the gospel of Jesus to somebody and they will weep. They will say, thank you. Uh, it's, it's one of the easiest evangelistic opportunities we have throughout the year, but it's also a way for us to reclaim the safety that was historically true in this neighborhood where groups of people could walk down the street and people wouldn't close their shutters or, or get nervous or scared. And so we get to go and push back some of the darkness in our neighborhood, literally with maybe you'll have candles or flashlights, but also spiritually. We will be the people of God and we will go sing the good news of why we celebrate Christmas. So I, if you're nervous about it or uncomfortable, I am too. Every year I get nervous and I would encourage you step into the risk and, and see with the Lord how he might shift in your own heart and the beautiful experience you might have with your brothers and sisters singing in the night. So, and then after that, we'll come back and have cocoa and watch a Christmas movie and eat popcorn, right? So just deal with the awkwardness for an hour and we'll bribe you with cocoa and popcorn. So come check it out. I'm really excited. It's, it's consistently... Uh, something that we hear from neighbors. This is one of the greatest things that's happened in this neighborhood. My kids think about this every year. You have no idea. I can remember last year we were singing and uh, this person had no church affiliation. Someone in our group knew them. They didn't go to church, didn't believe in God. And she was just sitting there weeping as we were singing uh, the good news that Jesus was born. So I hope you guys can come and check it out. As I was working on uh, this sermon, I started thinking about um, a crazy dog I had when I was a kid named Nikki, and um, I'm not I'm not dogging on dog people here. I should have used a different word because uh, like dog people are weird and cat people are weird. I both of them. I personally am a dog person, as is our Lord. But I understand <laughs> some people. What I don't understand about cat people is you pay money for a creature, like you you know they're going to go to the bathroom in your house, right? Like that's the setup. Like, that's the design for they, they go to the bathroom in your house and it stays there, right? Like, so that's weird. And then you're also paying them money to be aloof with you and be cold and distant and you're gone for a week and you paid somebody else to keep them alive and you come home and they just look at you. Like, so I don't get any of that stuff. Um, I'm more into the cheap affection of dogs, you know, where they just come and... But then with dogs, you pay to have this creature in your house that they'll go to the bathroom, not by design, but they'll still go to the bathroom in your house. And then if you have a dog like I had, they destroy just pretty much everything at some point. Um, this dog, Nikki, was, and I'm saying we probably got Nikki, I don't know this, so, you know, don't get too hung up on the details here. I would say we owned Nikki from the time I was six until I was 14. Some, somewhere around there. Maybe shift those years around, whatever. She didn't last long for reasons that I will explain shortly. Um, Nikki was a Yorkshire Terrier. You know what Yorkies are? So they're supposed to be little tiny, like you put them in your purse, little tiny dogs with, with the bows in their chin hair, whatever. Uh, our Yorkshire Terrier was morbidly obese. Um, she was huge. Didn't look at all like a Yorkshire Terrier. And I think, something was, I think something was mentally wrong with her. 
Because she wouldn't just get excited. When, when she got excited, she would start snarling and have like these little mini seizures and just like get uncontrollable shaking and, and excitement. And she would just do crazy things, make crazy noises. She was the kind of dog that would, uh, Yorkshire Terriers, I guess, got bred in Scotland or wherever Yorkshire is. UK, I'm guessing. Uh, but they would ferret out. They would run and find rats and mines and stuff like that. And so, we, you know, you'd look over and Nikki would be just chewing the floorboard for no reason or like running up and down the walls, just a crazy dog. And so we had to fill our house with all of these Nikki rules. And these were rules for her own good and for the safety of all of our possessions. Um, and so how did she become morbidly obese, you may ask? Well, one of the uh, Nikki rules had to do with what she would eat. And her primary staple... Uh, food was these things called steakums. You guys know what steakums are? Microwavable Philly cheesesteaks. And it's like you get these frozen sheets of raw meat and you microwave it. And like it was that cheeseburgers and boiled chicken. That like this is what Nikki eats. And listen, I feel you judging me right now. It was not my decision, right? I, I played by the rule when you're six years old, you don't really change the culinary habits of your family with the dog or whatever. So like, there's things like that. But this, is, this is what she eats. Um, you had to protect certain things from her because you knew what would happen if you left the house. She had to go to certain parts of the house or whatever. Probably the biggest rule that we had in our home uh, involved when the doorbell rang. Because as soon as the doorbell rang, you had to take kind of like a hockey goalie position in front of the door. Uh, some of you know this. I've been to your houses. You uh, the door opens a crack and then teeth come out down right at shin height, like <laughs> the dog. As soon as the door would open, Nikki was like, she was ready to bolt. And I had an uncle, my sometimes favorite uncle, David, who he has the teasing gene, right? Like he just lived to tease me and my brother. And one of his favorite uh, games, games, he would play grown man teasing a six-year-old, right? I hope you're listening, Uncle David. Uh, so what he would do is he'd come visit our house, and I don't know what these things are called, I'm sorry, but you know, you have your, your exterior door, like a clear plastic door, and then you have your interior door, and you can open your interior door and see out without actually having the door open, right? Uh, so Uncle, what is it, storm door? Storm door. Why is it, pl like that plastic is going to help in a storm, whatever. <laughs> so Uncle David would have the door open, and he would rattle the storm door right? And so you'd hear the plastic rattling door hinges, and then he would sh start shouting, run free, Nikki, run free! And Nikki would hear this and come bolting around the corner, and <laughs> you know, so intense, and my brother and I are screaming, no, Uncle David, no, no, Because any chance she got, Nikki would run free. And then that would, we would enlist the neighborhood in a 15-hour manhunt for where did my dog go, and it's under somebody's deck, and whatever. And so all this dog really wanted was this run-free mentality. What, and my uncle David never let her go, just, just to be clear, right? Like he was just getting a rise out of the kids. He didn't want to wish any harm on the dog. Because what did Uncle David know? He knew right out there on Cameron Drive, cars were flying by all the time. And if Nikki ran out there, something terrible would probably happen. We knew, my brother and I knew kind of at like an implicit gut level, and Uncle David knew that this freedom that my dog wanted, if she got it, would likely kill her. But Nikki had no idea how dangerous this freedom that she was craving really was. Now, what's interesting about this, or why, would, why did I think about that? Well, we've been talking about freedom 
in the book of Galatians for months now. And God basically saying to us, run free, go, live. And the reactions I hear from this in talking with you all are either, this is so scary. Going down this road, I feel confused. The number of people I've talked to that say they, they feel disoriented or they feel confused. Uh, the number of people who have been offended at the idea. Well, are you saying that we should just go? When, when you say that we're free and that we're saved by grace, does that mean that Christians, now we should just go sin all the stuff that you ask for forgiveness for? Now, does this mean we should just go do all of this stuff? And as these fears roll in us, some people get so scared of what could happen, of, of what's going out there, what's going on out there on the street, so to speak, uh, they just simply stay in home, inside. They stay home. They, they close the doors. They say, I'll never run out there. I'll never run out because you don't know what's going to happen out there. And so they, they kind of cage their freedom. They shut it down and we stay inside. Some, some people are so afraid of what's out there that they'll go back and cling to old rules about what you can and can't do. And then they'll judge people for living free. They'll, they'll see those of us who've gotten a taste of, of the good country, of the good life with God, and, and they'll become critical and angry now, maybe this is obvious, um, but Paul, who wrote Galatians, knows how deadly freedom can be. Uh, he's not like my dog, who doesn't know what's waiting out there. And even more so, God knows how deadly and dangerous our freedom can be. But God has revealed to Paul, and he's revealed to us through all of the scriptures, that we were made to be free. If the debate inside the church is whether or not we should be free, we are asking the wrong question. The, the question is not, should we be free or not free? This is something like churches like ours have really dropped the ball on over the years. Is freedom a positive or a negative? Is it necessary or just like a nice thing? And God is saying, no, you were made for freedom. To be a human being requires freedom. The question, rather, is how do we live free and not harm ourselves and each other? How do we live free and not bring destruction into our own lives? And this morning, Paul tells us uh, one of the keys to maintaining the life of freedom. So it's not one of the extremes of either caging our souls, and it also doesn't mean we just run blindly into oncoming traffic. Uh, it's, I like this. It's appropriately ambiguous. So it'll, it'll have some direction, some definition without getting into specifics. So it's, it's enough to send us out without triggering our addiction to rules and performance. So when you hear the message of God's grace and you immediately want a list of the eight things you should or shouldn't do in response to that, that's an indication of your addiction to your performance. So it's ambiguous enough to not do those things, but it's limited enough to keep us safe. So the foundation for the text today comes in verse 13. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. So if you're here and you're sleepy this morning, and you're thinking about napping during the sermon, because I, th I see you guys, I see when you fall asleep. <laughs> Write this verse down, and then you can go to sleep. This is all we're talking about from here on out. What is the guardrail to freedom? It's to serve one another in a posture of love. Uh, to put it a little bit negatively, freedom is not jet fuel for sin. So when people say, are you saying that we can just go blah, 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 they've totally misunderstood what freedom is about. You're, so your sinful nature it's the part of you that wants to do life on your own terms. You know what I mean? 
It's the part of you that thinks you know best. It's the part of you that sees something plain in the scriptures and you're like, you go Google it to see if there's a way out of the obvious plain interpretation, right? You're looking for a way to justify what's your, what you're doing. It's the part of you that wants to give in to every whim and desire. And, but the gospel of grace is not an invitation to give in, but also freedom is not new rules either. The middle ground is, it's a posture. It's, it's not a list of rules. It's not a list of behaviors. It's a posture where we seek to maintain our freedom through loving service. How do we stay safe in the life of freedom? Love people and serve them. Lovingly serve them. Now you can take your nap. If you're curious about what else is in there, let's go. So there's the simple lesson. What's the guardrail to freedom? How do you find the middle ground? Serve one another in love. Now, he goes on to talk about a reality. Wouldn't it be awesome if it was this easy? If, this were, if it was this easy, know this, y'all would be done sinning. We would say, okay, I'm going to love and serve people from now on, and we're, that's good. We'll be free and we'll be safe. Here's the reality that Paul goes into from here. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. That's the practical thing. Conceptually, what do we do? Love one another, serve one another. Practically, what does this mean? Let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. We'll talk about what that looks like a little more practically. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. So you're not free to carry out your good intentions. So what this is saying is that when you become a Christian, you are enlisted into a civil war of the soul where your old way of doing things is now battling a new way of doing things. Your old self with all of its baggage and the things that felt normal, you're now finding a new way of being you in Christ, a redeemed way. And we have to grow in our ability to distinguish between the two. Which one of these is winning right now? Which one of these is, is arguing? Which, which one of these is giving me the compelling, most compelling evidence for what I should do, where I should go, where I shouldn't go? And hopefully I don't need to do a lot of explaining to you when I say the civil war of the soul, the conflicting desires, the second guessing, the really feeling drawn to do something that you know is destructive. But this can be very confusing. And, and Paul, here's how Paul explains how we can start learning to become a wiser church. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. So what he's saying is, sometimes you can't totally distinguish what's going on in your soul. You can't totally distinguish uh, which is this old me or new me until you look at the results. And he goes on a long list of 15 one-word messes that are incredibly revealing. And the list isn't exhaustive, okay, for the neat nicks out there who want, maybe want to go to this and say, like, these are the 15 ways that people sin. Uh, it's not that. He ends it by saying, and sins like these. I think this is Paul getting kind of so wound up that he's just throwing out all of these things that people do. And it's funny, some people will try to force categories into them. So these are these types of sins, and these are these, and this would be... Listen, I think it's just Paul ranting about all of these different ways that people go sideways. And he's doing so for a very specific point, which I, I think we can begin to see what that is. I'm just going to look at the first three of them. I, I think there's a thread that connects all 15 of these words together. So the first ones he goes through are sexual immorality, impurity, and lustful pleasures. So sexual immorality, uh, there it is. Yep. 
I just get excited about the laser pointer, sorry. Uh, it's the word fornication. And in, Bible, in the Bible, what is fornication? It's any kind of sexual activity outside of monogamous, heterosexual marriage. So any sexual activity that happens outside of monogamous, heterosexual marriage, take any one of those three away, and it falls under the category of sexual immorality. Impurity, this is a word that made a lot more sense back then um, than it does for us today. It's, this is Paul gener- basically saying like, and all the other weird stuff you guys do sexually, right? Like it's a big ambiguous term. It's like all the other ungodly things you guys do and you're fooling around and stuff. Uh, and then lustful pleasures. Underneath this is a, is a, a, a big word, a, a great word that I don't know if many of us use it anymore. Wantonness. You guys know what that word means? Like the wanton pursuit of pleasure. It's just all over the place. So think pro- promiscuity, okay? So he's saying sexual immorality, impurity, all the stuff you guys are doing, you're doing whatever you want with whoever you want, whenever you want it. Now, in, in each of these instances... Sex stops being what God made it to be, which gives us a really important lesson about sin for a second. So listen, if you're new to church, or I don't know, I don't know how you found yourself here this morning, and you're like, oh my gosh, we're talking about sex. I want you to know sex was God's idea. Amen? Right? Like, let the Christians say amen, at least. That's what we believe. So he he didn't freak out when he's like, Adam and Eve are doing what? Right? Like, this is God's idea, and which means it's good. Sin doesn't exist in a vacuum. Sin doesn't, there's no like sin monster that comes and drops sin on people or something like that. You, could, you should think of sin as a parasite that finds something good, latches onto it and twists it and, and distorts it. It sucks the life out of it to make it something other than what it was created to be. So at its core, human sexuality is, it's an expression of intimacy It's intended to be a reclaiming of Eden in some ways, a place where we can be naked and unashamed, where we can be safe, where we can be known and loved. In these sexual sins, someone else becomes an object for our own desires. A person becomes a means to an end. And that person could be us. Like, listen, whenever you abandon God's design for humanity, it's usually in favor of your design for humanity. You see that? When you think that creation is meant to be bent to your desires instead of God's desires, functionally, you've treated yourself like God. This is what's happening here in each one of these instances. Um, The thread that ties the fruit of the flesh. Maybe it's more clear if we look at the list of the fruit of the Spirit, what Paul is saying. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We're not going to go through each one of these words. Uh, Here's our plug for the app. Haven't plugged the app in like 15 minutes. You can download the app, sermon series. We did a whole series on the fruit of the Spirit. You can go back and listen to it. We did it on each one of these. Um, In the fruit of the flesh list, each one of those objectifies a person. It It dehumanizes someone else in some way or destroys the foundations of a relationship in some way. Each sin comes from a heart that either sees someone as a means to an end, an an obstacle to overcome, or an enemy to conquer. But the fruit of the Spirit, you see how each one of these builds relationship? You can go through each one of these, and, and we do this in the sermon series. These don't happen in isolation. 
You can't experience one of these in the fullness of their intent in isolation. The, the fruit of the Spirit comes from a heart that sees someone else as a child of God, as a brother or a sister. The heart led by the Spirit is, is always pointed out to build and to encourage. This is true with all of the works of the Spirit. And like, so like in this area, people often will talk about the, um, uh, the gifts of the Spirit, like, I always get nervous when you run into someone and they're like, oh, does your church believe in the gifts of the Spirit? Which basically means if you speak in tongues and do wild, miraculous things, then you're really Christians. So listen now, our church believes in that kind of stuff. We've prayed for healing and we've seen healing. We think the gifts of the Spirit are active. But when you see the gifts of the Spirit being used to prove somebody's faith or to prove what kind of church we are, that is not what the gifts are for. Go look Search the scriptures where it talks about the gifts of the Spirit. They are given to us to build up the church, to encourage each other, to bless one another. It's never about one individual person or a platform. It's always about us as a community. The heart that is led by the Spirit is always pointed out to the other to build and to encourage. People are not uh, enemies to conquer or any of that. It's more like they're mysteries to explore. And the turning point, it's so beautiful that Paul doesn't give us this list of rules uh, or these lists of strategies. Uh, what he says, that the hinge that will decide if we give into the heart of flesh or the, the fruit of the Spirit comes down to this issue is will we be driven by love and service? We become truly free when we are driven by love and service. So listen, how do we stop objectifying people? It's not to start saying, I won't objectify people. You don't stop objectifying people simply by saying no to doing that. How do I know that's true? Well, take, take seven seconds and think about a sin you've been struggling with for a while. Okay, so you've all got that sin in your mind. I'm imagining most of you, the way you've been dealing with that over the years is by, you come to Sunday, right? Because you, you did it yesterday or you did it on the way to church or whatever. And you're feeling bad and you're like, I'm gonna go to church. I'm gonna get encouraged and I'm gonna just say no this week. I'm going to say no. And you've been just saying knowing your way through that sin for the last 15, 20 years, right? Like saying no to doing something is one of the surefire ways that you will eventually start doing that thing again or something like it. We can't simply say no to our sin. We have to learn what it is that God is inviting us to say yes to, yes to love, Yes to service. Love is the guardrail to freedom. We can't just live away from something. We have to learn to live into something. And so if you're here and you're worried about freedom compelling you into sin, if I'm this free, I'm just gonna start doing sinful stuff. What you really need to worry about is a lack of love for others. And this is fundamentally what it means to walk by the spirit. It's less becoming Jedi with superpowers or something like that as it is um, from a heart of love, we take a posture of service. Which, so first of all, what that means is we must be a people who stop trying to cage freedom or to domesticate freedom. This happens when we reduce the Christian life to a list of what we don't do. And if you're wondering if we do that or not, it's interesting. Jesus said the world will know us by our love for one another. And it seems like the world around us knows us by the things that we say we don't do, right? 
Like living defensively is when you live your life by what you are against. And this isn't just Christians that do this. Most humans find some way to do this. We identify ourselves based on what we do not do. It's, it's defensively. And it's understandable because freedom is messy. Freedom is scary. Freedom is gray. In the life of freedom, you will be faced with decisions and choices where it's at best morally ambiguous. It's not at all obvious or clear what you're supposed to do. So into that, we have this reality, this promise that we were made for freedom. And we cannot sacrifice our design for temporary feelings of safety. Freedom, freedom's a wild animal that we can never domesticate. It, like, you, can, you won't necessarily die the day that you put a tiger in your living room, but eventually the thing's going to get you, right? If you try to button up your freedom, if you try to constrict and confine your soul, it's like putting a tiger in your living room. Saying yes to walking by the Spirit is the road to freedom. It requires learning the rhythms of relationship and dependence. And again, the turning point is love and service. So the free life stops asking, am I allowed to do this? Because like, if we're saying, will this make you go to hell? Like, mostly no, right? If we're saved by grace, there's theological debates. Maybe there's one or two things that you, I, you know, I don't know. Uh, the life of grace pretty much deals with that. Am I allowed to do this question? But that's not the life of freedom. The, the life of freedom asks instead, who is this loving and who is this serving? And it's okay if the answer to that sometimes is myself. Because, you know, Jesus is saying to us, the whole law is summed up by this. Love one another as you love yourself. So you've got to love yourself sometimes, but you shouldn't be loving yourself only and always. Who is this loving? Who is this serving? And this gets to the the big question of this passage, when we start asking, what am I saying yes to? And I try to find something that rhymes every week because it's helpful for me and I think it's funny. So second, follow the fruit down to the root. You're welcome. So listen, we can't cage our freedom and we have to learn to follow what's going on underneath this. Paul gives us such a long list to show us that the behavior in and of itself is not the problem. Yes, the behavior is the problem, but if you've been doing something that you know is wrong and you knew it was wrong before you did it, you felt bad after doing it and you're worried you're going to do it again, you, that should clue you in to there's something more than just this action that is going on here. So yes, the behavior is the problem, but the scope is so wide, like sorcery and sex, right? Anger and arguing. He's showing us that at the heart of these behaviors is a desire that's been distorted. So the desire is rarely the problem as much as it is our strategy for fulfilling the desire. So again, think about sin as a parasite. It latches onto something good and it twists it. Somewhere along the line between desire and fulfillment, sin will come in, pervert it. So again, you don't deal with uh, the good, beautiful human um, drive for sexual expression. You don't deal with that if it's gone sideways by shutting it down. No, no, that's not the problem. You have to learn to know your desires and see it and say, what is God's strategy for fulfilling this? What is the way that God has designed this to be met? God has said, listen, this is what freedom means for sexuality. This is what it looks like. And you can buck up against that if you want. Are you allowed to do that? It's like, well, go, I guess. How much pain do you want to bring into your life? You know, 
How much suffering do you want to bring into your life? What will, you can go back and look at the fruit of the flesh and see what comes about as, as a result of doing all of this. God says to us, here's what freedom looks like. Now you can go down that road or you can spend years and years and years disagreeing with me and reaping the consequences of that. If you depart from God's design for whatever it is, you'll do real damage to your soul and, and the souls of others. So to walk by the Spirit means that we know our desires and then we follow God's strategy for fulfilling them. We don't say no to sexual immorality as much as we say yes to true intimacy and love. You cannot know and owe your way into holiness. You say yes. God didn't save us just to not sin. He saved us to be adopted into his family and conform to the image of his son. So we say yes to freedom. I mean, the best way, the, the only way that I can think that we live as free people is through acts of love, the genuine commitment to the highest good of another, to see them become who they could become. So I think God is saying to us, if you want to be free, love others like you love yourself. If you want to be free, serve. If, if you want to be great, serve. If you want to be first, be last. Like this is the pattern of the scriptures. We've got a great book out on the book table, and there's a link to it in the sermon notes on the app. Uh, it's by a, a theologian named Jen Pollock. Uh, her book is called Teach Us to Want, and it helps us see like what are these desires and what, how do we unpack them, and, and how do we purify our desires to be pointed towards God's strategy for fulfilling them. And, and maybe for some of us, uh, the real challenge will revolve around that question of love, like maybe we think that love is that kind of emotional intensity or the feeling of chemistry or, you know, something along those lines. Like that, that's part of love at times, but that's not the best love. I mean, true, true biblical love is a commitment to the highest good of another. It's a posture more than it is a way of life. And the way the Bible says this love is displayed practically, and so see how all of this is building you are free. To be free, you have to serve and love. And how do you love? In the Bible, love is most clearly displayed as an act of self-sacrifice. We have evidence of God's love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He, he laid his life down for us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. See the connection. We have evidence of love through self-sacrifice. God so loved that he gave. No man has greater love than this, that he lay his life down for his friends. Over and over, you'll see this theme come up. Love is displayed through self-sacrifice. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If we want to love, we must learn the art of self-sacrificial service. We began this morning by setting our eyes on the peace candle, which announces that this civil war of the soul, our, our competing desires, our conflicted desires, that, that war has been won through the sacrifice of God's Son. So if you, have a, if you have a service problem, you have a love problem. And if you have a love problem, you have a gospel problem. We have forgotten that we've been loved. We've forgotten that we've been served. So we turn our eyes to the cross of Christ remembering again God's love for us, remembering again God's service of us. Yes, his love led to crucifixion. So one of the lessons that should mean for us is when we seek to live like him, it will be painful and confusing. 
If you love somebody well, you will cause them pain at some point. You will say something to them that hurts them. And if, if you have people in your life that are loving you well, at some point the words they say will hurt you and be painful for you. But just as the crucifixion led to the resurrection, so too will our service eventually lead to new life. The crucifixion led to the resurrection, freedom from death itself. So maybe at the core, our invitation this morning is simply to remember God's love for us. And if we experience that, we will go from here with the posture of servants. You've been set free. Stand in your freedom. Protect it and nourish it by learning to love and by serving one another. And this is This is ultimately what we come to remember. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this and remember what I've done for you. If you come here today wondering, does God love me? The the answer from the scriptures is a resounding yes. We have evidence of God's love for you because Christ's body was broken for you. After the meal, Jesus took a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood shed for you, and it makes you safe with God. Drink this and remember what I've done for you. If you're saying, does God still love me? Am I still in his family? We would say, has the blood of Christ been shed? And the answer is yes, which means yes, we are safe with God. Our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward, or there'll be stations in the back. You can rip off a piece of bread, dip it in wine or juice. Wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it, and there'll be gluten-free elements to my left, your right. I'll pray for us, and then Christians, let's come forward and remember our freedom. Let's pray.